Hello, this is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. Welcome to all those that are thirsty and hungry for truth, for what is real, what is reality, which only fulfills our destiny with everlasting satisfaction to the core of our being. For those of you that are new, I just want to briefly introduce where I'm coming from and what I'm about to share. I am seeking to speak out of the Spirit of God what God would say by His Spirit to those in God's foreknowledge that hear this message and to the corporate body of believers around the world, believers in what is ultimately real and true. As such, I seek to find a passage of scripture that I am led to each day, a particular chapter in the Bible. I meditate on it for only a half an hour. Sometimes I go a slightly bit over that. And in that time, I also make notes on what I have meditated on. And then immediately after, I share the message as I am just now. That way I'm not relying on my own preparation. I must trust in the Holy Spirit of God to give me the words that he would speak to you. And actually, today more so maybe, the passage of scripture is just, I have no idea what I'm going to share from it. I just looked up the meaning, original meanings of a good number of words and made some very brief notes. And I often wonder how I could possibly share anything. And strangely, the Spirit of God many times has given very powerful messages from passages of Scripture that I thought I could not get nothing out of. Well, the more we learn not to trust in ourselves, the more we experience God working through us. And so I pray that's what will happen as I begin to share just now from the passage I received by the casting of lots before God today. It was from Psalms 26. And so I will first read this very short psalm. A psalm of David. Judge me, O Lord, for I have walked in mine integrity. I have trusted also in the Lord, therefore I shall not slide. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my reins and my heart. For thy loving kindness is before mine eyes, and I have walked in thy truth. I have not sat with vain persons, neither will I go in with dissemblers. I have hated the congregation of evildoers and will not sit with the wicked. I will wash mine hands in innocency, so will I compass thine altar, O Lord, that I may publish with the voice of thanksgiving and tell of all thy wondrous works. Lord, I have loved the habitation of thy house and the place where thine honor dwelleth. Gather not my soul with sinners, nor my life with bloody men, and whose hands is mischief, and the right hand is full of bribes, but as for me, 
I will walk in mine integrity. Redeem me and be merciful unto me. My foot standeth in an even place. In the congregations will I bless the Lord. Just going to have a brief drink of water. <clears throat> the theme that stands out in this Psalm 26 is the very intimate relationship that David had with the Almighty's One, the creator of this universe. Particularly in regards to his integrity and trust in God. In the first verse, he says, I have walked in mine integrity, I have trusted also in the Lord, therefore I shall not slide. In other words, I will not drift away from a relationship of intimacy with God because of these two things. Because I'm walking in integrity and I'm trusting in the Lord. Integrity has to do with walking according to our true inner conscience. And what is our true inner conscience? Genuine conscience, which we all have, is that inward knowing of what is good from what is not good, from what is on to life and is constructive unto greater and greater meaning and purpose, as opposed to that which is in a destructive direction. It is innate knowing of what leads on to good. People can sear their conscience, as it says in the New Testament. There are those that have seared their conscience with a hot iron by becoming very religious by the use of various rituals, such as the abstaining from various foods and so on, as somehow justifying themselves in their relationship before God. But they have used those things to ignore the inner echo of truth in their being as to what is genuinely true, to justify being their own God in independence from ultimate reality, which is who God is. God is the ultimate source of reality. Now, for those that are new, I will define who God is here. What reality is? If you look up in various dictionaries the word truth, you discover it basically means that which is real. That, in other words, what is ultimately real or is reality. So then you look up the word reality and real, and you find from various dictionaries that basically it means that which is unchangeable, everlasting, and indestructible. So then we must ask ourselves, what quality could possibly be ultimately real? 
Now, reality also has another understanding in it that has this quality. The only thing that can really have a quality like this is what is filled with life. Fulfillment and ultimate meaning that is totally creative and ever-expanding and without end. In other words, there's not the slightest ounce of destructibility within that ultimate quality which makes up reality. The, uh, anything that is less has an element of destructibleness in it or of corruption in it and therefore is not the ultimate source of reality. And because of that destructibility in it, will eventually come to complete destruction over a period of time. In fact, even as we look at science, we see that there are two ultimate laws. There's the first and second laws of thermodynamics, which are observed in the whole known universe, scientifically observed. The first law basically says that matter cannot be destroyed. It just simply changes into different forms, whether it's one time a solid state or the next time a gaseous state. But it's only changed its form. It cannot be destroyed. And the implication behind this first law is that there therefore must be no beginning for what exists could not have had a beginning, but must have always been. And the second law says that anything left onto its own will eventually go in the direction of greater and greater disorder onto total chaos and destruction. These two laws, in light of our present existence, point to ultimate reality because of the contradiction that is perceived in these two laws. Because these two laws are basically saying that we should have come to complete chaos in the infinite past, but yet here we are in a universe that is so highly designed and complex. Every little cell in plants and in our body has little engines in it that are so complicated. According to one scientist, which wrote a book called In Dwarwin's Black Box, he says in that book that there are little systems and machines in our cells that are more complex than man today creating a spaceship with the capability to land on another planet and reproduce itself on that other planet and take off and spread to other planets and continue to do so. And so man hasn't even achieved the complexity that is in the little machines that exist in all of our cells. This points to an ultimate source of reality. I'm not here to get into all the evidence that points towards God, who is ultimate reality. He is described in the Bible as I am that I am, which is another way of saying I am ultimate reality. In Hebrew, it is asher, ahiyah, asher. Asher meaning to be, and ahiyah, which, and to be.
God, Jesus Christ said, I am that I am. So God has a quality of being that can contain unlimited life that can be expressed in total creativity without any destructibleness and that is ever enlarging in creativity and greater capacities of fulfillment. What is that quality that constitutes God as ultimate reality? That quality I will describe now. It is love. It is the highest state of love that is described in the Bible. There's three states of love that are described in the New Testament in the original Greek. The highest is agape love. The one below that is philio, which has to do with a love where we experience emotion and affection. And the one below that is eros, which is the physical. But agape love is by far the highest form of love. And it says in the word of God, in 1 John, in two different verses, God is love. And that's using the word agape. This is a love that I will now define in a way that could not be defined so that there would be any other quality that could be possibly described that would be a greater quality than what I am about to define, and anything less would be less than the ultimate perfection of love. And so this is what I'm going to describe. This love is more than just a feeling. It is totally self-originating and free in choice. In other words, it doesn't get its input from an outside source like a robot. It is totally self-originating and free in choice. But in that choice, it is always choosing the highest lasting good over any more immediate choice of self-gratification or fulfillment, which as such would be less than ultimate good and would have an element of corruption in it. Love is more than a feeling. It transcends feeling with a choice that always chooses the highest lasting good over any more immediate self-fulfillment. No, you can't describe love to be higher than that. Only this quality can contain unlimited power and unlimited life without being corrupted by unlimited power in life and contain it without dissipation, without misusing it so that it dissipates. Only this quality. Such a quality is super intelligent beyond any comprehension of our normal intellect as well, because such choices would have to be ultimately intelligent. But the root of those choices is not in some computer capability of intelligence. It is in the essence 
of being, of quality of who God is, which constitutes him as the container of ultimate unlimited power and life that is ever creative in a direction of greater and greater enlargement and fulfillment. As such, there is something else to this quality of love. This love has absolute integrity. It is so ultimately pure in its integrity that it is a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest word, thought, deed, or action that would be contrary to it. That is the defensive aspect of love, of, the, of God who is love. It is also described in the Bible as the holiness of God. It is the defensive aspect of his love. It is the foundation from which can spring forth creativity without corruption that can ever enlarge in greater and greater realms of, of fulfillment. And this can be, and I've often taught this, but I'm never going to be bored about teaching about this, can be compared to the negative and positive symbols that we see in mathematics, in batteries that we plug in. First, there is the negative, which represents a horizontal line, which represents cutting off that which is contrary to the ultimate perfection of love, which represents also a foundation. And it is out of that that springs forth the positive, which is the symbol of the cross. So the ultimate, the foundation, which is in this integrity of love that, is, that requires judgment against this, all that is contrary to love, this integrity of love, the negative symbol, is the foundation from which springs forth this creativity to the degree that there is the capacity to show mercy to free will beings who are indirectly tempted through the natural realm to fall away from God if they repent. So how is that mercy possible? It is only possible in God himself taking judgment upon himself without inviolating the integrity of his love. It's very clear from the Old Testament that God is the source of forgiveness. It is also very clear from the Old Testament that the innocent animals that were offered where they laid their hands, for example, on an innocent lamb. It was a symbol of them placing their sin on that lamb, and the lamb was killed, representing their sin being, and the judgment of their sin being transferred onto that lamb. But it was very clear, if you put all the scriptures together in the Old Testament, that they recognized that that lamb could not fully represent them because it did not have a soul like them nor a spirit like them, 
It could only represent the physical realm and cleanse the physical realm, which allowed the presence of God to dwell with their soul and spirit, but not to be able to indwell their soul and spirit because an animal could not cleanse their soul and spirit. And so there's a clear recognition in the Old Testament that the source of forgiveness is not in the animal, but is in God. And there are many verses that point out that God is the source of forgiveness. Their response by slaying the innocent lamb was a symbol of them reaching out to receive God's forgiveness and God's mercy. And it did allow the cleansing of the physical realm, so they experienced the Spirit of God dwelling with their spirit in communion. Now, I won't get into in-depth teaching on this at this point. I just want to point that out. And then in the center of history, <clears throat> all the many prophecies that were foretold in the Old Testament about the Messiah coming, such as in Isaiah 53 and Zechariah 12 and many other places. For example, in Zechariah 12, it says they shall look on him whom they have pierced. And it's, oh, it doesn't say that part of it. It says, they shall look on me whom they have pierced. And it is God speaking in that passage of scripture in Zechariah 12. So God is saying, they shall look on me whom they have pierced. And so these prophecies were given many hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ came. God, it was, I believe, even understood by many, and many probably had it by revelation. Maybe some, I'm sure many, some grasped it intellectually just by deduction, and others it may have been more subconscious. But there was an understanding that since forgiveness is in God and God requires judgment, and, and since an animal cannot represent their soul and spirit, only the only thing that could totally cleanse their soul and spirit would be a being, a human being, that was totally sinless and lived a perfect life. And that could only be in God. And so there was an understanding that the source of forgiveness being in God implied that God had such an ultimate moral perfection in the purity of his love that he could actually humble himself more than us mere creatures and suffer more than us mere creatures to take the judgment of sin upon himself and actually absorb that judgment and yet still maintain his oneness with God because he is God and rise from the dead. And that's what happened with Christ. Now, there are many that do not understand much about God. They haven't been exposed to these things. So I just briefly want to give an understanding here that we do not believe in three gods. There is only one God, but there is this understanding that for God to govern the ultimate aspects of existence, what are the ultimate aspects of his existence? He must be a personage in those realms if he's going to govern the ultimate aspects of all existence. What are they? They are the realm that is beyond the time and space realm, beyond creation. They are the time and space realm that is being in creation. And they are the filling of all things with his presence. In other words, God as the Father, the Father represents the word father has the understanding 
of being the originator and the one that sees the end from the beginning through the experience of being beyond time. And so the Father is that aspect of God governing that is beyond the time and space realm where he sees the end from the beginning and is the originator. The Son is just the expression of the Father into creation, to govern in the creation realm. For God to be a person beyond time, to govern beyond time and space, he must be a person. And to be, be in that, to be beyond time and space, for God to be a person within the time and space realm, he must be in personage within the time and space realm to relate to his creation, to experience what his creation is experiencing and to partake in the fellowship within being creative in the realm that he is creating. And so the word son basically means expression. And it says in Hebrews 1, 3, that Jesus Christ is the full expression of the Father. And then the Holy Spirit is the omnipresence of God filling all things. So we have the Father beyond time and space, the Son in governance, the Son in time and space in governance, and the Holy Spirit in omnipresence in governance. And so we have one God, only one God, described in three aspects of government, and thus also in three personages that are in total union and oneness with each other in a reciprocation of the ultimate perfection of love. I am not here to go into too much in this. I have laid a foundation here for those that are new. Now I want to share from this passage of what we're talking about. So King David in this passage of Scripture here says that the way that he does not slide away from God is because he walks in his integrity, which I described as being in tune with one's conscience. And one's conscience points towards ultimate good and towards all those things that spring from ultimate good that we can see in creation that are a reflection of the ultimate good, who is God, that we respond to in a direction that is on to ultimate good. We do not violate our conscience. Our conscience always aligns with what we see about us that is on to good and that points to ultimate good. Who is God? Now, this word integrity is mentioned more than once in this passage. It, it tends to be one of the main foundations of what is described in King David's relationship with God in this passage. And I just want to also give you an understanding of the meaning of this word integrity from the original Hebrew. <clears throat> and so <clears throat> I'm just going to give you that right now. Now in the original Hebrew, we go back to the ancient letters that are symbol language, which is back 2000 BC, 1500 BC actually, going all the way back to 2000 and even earlier. And the two symbol letters that were used for the word integrity 
are first the symbol of the cross, exactly as you would see a cross or a plus sign on a battery. And then the next symbol is the symbol of little waves that represent water. And the understanding of this word in the Hebrew is the understanding of completeness and of prosperity. Remember I said that integrity has to do with aligning our conscience to ultimate good or to what is prosperous, what is onto life as opposed to destructive illness. It also has the understanding morally of innocence. But in this symbol language, you get an even deeper meaning of integrity. The first symbol, which is the symbol of the cross, that particular symbol had the basic meaning of being a sign and being a symbol. And so what does that symbol and that sign represent? It represents the sign of what is ultimately good. And as I described, the symbol of the cross representing the negative aspect or the ultimate negative and plus, ultimate negative and positive of the universe, which is this ultimate perfection of love that I describe, that has the integrity to judge all that is contrary to it, and from that has such a foundation of creativity to the degree that it can show mercy to creation by God himself becoming a perfect atoning sacrifice. And if God could not created a creation in which he could not allow them to have the choice to receive destiny and purpose, ultimate everlasting destiny and purpose, that would imply that God was less than perfect. But God can assure Forgiveness to those that repent and receive his atoning sacrifice on the cross through Jesus Christ. People often think that when Christ died on the cross, that he was cut off from God. The word of God doesn't say that he was cut off from God. In fact, it does. there's verses that indicate that's not so at all. He did receive the full judgment of God and the full, forsake, the full forsaking of God in the sense of receiving the judgment that deserved to fall on the creation on us who have sinned against God. But in that time on the cross, his spirit was in a state of total selfless trust in God the Father. He had a full moral persuasion of selfless trust. He never rebelled against God the Father and shook his fist at God on the cross, so to speak. His soul was like an open hand which represents a state of selflessness and surrender in the midst of experiencing all that pain and forsaking of the presence of fellowship with God, he still maintained a selfless trust in God the Father. And so it says in Romans 1.4 that he rose from the dead by the spirit of holiness. And that spirit of holiness is the spirit 
of absolute purity, purity of love. And his purity of love was maintained in union with the Father in the very moments where he experienced saying, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Yes, he experienced the forsaking of God's presence and fellowship. But he did not lose his trust in the Father, for he said, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And I want to describe, and the reason I am describing this is because I want you to have an understanding that Jesus Christ always was God and is God in that dimension of God's expression in creation. He is God in government in the creation or the time and space realm, and he maintained that union as God through this painful experience that verified the ultimate perfection of his being to be able out of the integrity of such love to be transcendent in mercy to assure to creation destiny and ultimate purpose. Allowing creation the opportunity to choose to repent and to receive the forgiveness of God and to be reconciled to God and enter into an ultimate destiny of being part of his corporate bride in heaven that will govern the universe and experience fellowship with God that is ever enlarging in greater realms of creativity for each individual personally and also corporately in union and fellowship with the Almighty's one, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the one true God. I don't have time here to explain a lot about the fear of God. But I do want to explain this a bit. I'm writing a book on the fear of God, which involves a lot more than just that topic. Its foundation is that topic from which springs many other things. There is a verse in Isaiah 33, around verse 5, if I remember, and 6, and it's speaking about Christ as the Messiah. The context is very clear in verse 5 that it's about the Messiah. And concerning the Messiah, it says, the fear of the Lord is his treasure. In other words, the, tre the thing that Jesus Christ treasures more than anything is the fear of God. So what is the fear of God? It is a choice. That is more than just an intellectual ascent. It is a deep turning of choice from the heart that chooses to recognize God for who he fully is so that one reaches out from their inner being in a selfless state of trust represented in a hand of selfless surrender. It is a full persuasion. The word faith in the New Testament comes from the Greek word pistis, which means moral persuasion. In the Hebrew, it is amen, which is the same as the word amen. And again, it has the understanding of being fully persuaded in who God is so that there is total 
relinquishment of our life into his hands and a total trust, a state of selfless trust. It involves our soul and our spirit opening up from a state of self-seeking selfishness and rebellion, which is represented in a closed fist, which is like a black hole in outer space that is always trying to find fulfillment in independence from God and can never fill that void that was only made to be satisfied by ultimate reality, who is God. And so the more people try to fill the void within them that was only created to be filled by God, the more desperate they become and destructive they become on their choices, just like a black hole in outer space that pulls everything in in a destructive way. It is when we come to the point of recognizing the futility and the absolute emptiness of our lives apart from God that we reach out and cry out for the truth or we harden our hearts in total rebellion and end up in hell forever. And in the relationship of Christ with the Father, there is also the fear of God that is required, which is a choice to recognize God to be ultimately perfect and ultimately trustworthy, to have an ultimate integrity of love that can contain ultimate goodness, whether that's subconscious, and some they may not be even aware of that that's what is going on within their heart, their mind not, not, might not be able to fully comprehend it, but that is what is going on in the heart. It is a recognition of the ultimate trustworthiness of God that can only be in a perception of the absolute integrity of his love to require judgment of all that is contrary to it. And that also recognizes that God is able to forgive and to show mercy. So we have... When there is that deep turning in the heart, an ultimate negative, uh, first the perception of the negative or that which is the holiness of God, the integrity of God's love, out of which springs the recognition of the greatness of God's mercy to them personally and thus the greatness of God's love to them. And when they see the greatness of God's love to them personally, that he could actually forgive them if they cry out and ask for mercy and for forgiveness, recognizing that God himself is the perfect atoning sacrifice that can only forgive. And then there is the moral persuasion that God is ultimately trustworthy and that state of self-worship that's like a fist in a black hole and out of space or like a seed that is hard and insulated. The shell is broken open and the life of God's Spirit comes in. So our hand, representing that state of selfless trust, another hand comes against that hand, which is the Spirit of God to dwell with our spirit in a state of selfless trust, which is the new divine nature of what is called being born again, which people have experienced from the time of Adam and Eve till now. The only difference is that before the Spirit of God dwelt with them, Christ said this plainly before he died on the cross. He said, you know him, because for he dwells with you, but he shall be in your and dwell you. 
And after he died on the cross, their spirit and soul could be cleansed. So they experienced not only being born again of the spirit by God dwelling with their spirit in communion, but also indwelling them. And this also represents the possibility of them being able to actually through prayer because their soul and spirit is cleansed, come before the presence of the Holy of Holies in prayer and have a way of access into the very presence of God. Did they have access into the presence of God before Christ died on the cross? Of course they did. It was just that they could not have their soul and spirit be indwelled, nor their soul and spirit ascend into the very direct presence of God through prayer and fellowship. Now with Christ on the cross, when he beheld the Father and treasured the fear of God, it was like this. He looks at the Father and he's so appreciative of this ultimate purity and integrity of love that is filled with such glory and with such goodness and with such light that he's just filled with thankfulness as he reciprocates what he sees in God and government as the Father. And so as he sees this, he says to the Father, Father, I love you so much and I'm filled with such thankfulness that I want the love in me to be enlarged and so I'm hungry. I want to enlarge my love and my expression towards you. I'm so satisfied and yet at the same time longing for greater enlargement. And so I want to go into a great condescension and suffer more than the mere creatures that you've created I want to suffer and take their sin upon me so that I can bring forth to you, Father, a corporate bride so that you can be enlarged in love with this corporate bride I bring before you. And the Father says to the Son, Son, I see in you such glory and integrity of love and expression that I am just filled with such thankfulness, son, that all I can do is say, son, as painful as it is, I'm willing to let you go because I love you, son, and I want you to inherit a corporate bride that you can experience in union with me in an ever-increasing creativity of love that will go on forever and ever. And I want all of these beings, free will beings, to come into such an harmony and unity through all of this that there is a permanent unity an immunity against the potential of rebellion ever happening again in the universe. Because of the unity they see in this corporate bride and the wisdom of you putting it together, a beautiful mosaic of individuality and yet unity that reflects your glory in multifaceted ways that gives such testimony to all creation that they would never, ever again enter in to such a rebellion that brings suffering and death. In this passage of Scripture, this is all that is involved in these first little statements here. For I have walked in my integrity and I have trusted in the Lord. I could go into the meanings of these words. I've looked them up. The word trusted. I mean, I have that word in the original here, but... It's basically what I said. It, it has to do with having total confidence in who God is. I mean, I could go into the symbolic words here. It has the understanding of clinging, of moral persuasion, of security, of holding on to something because of 
making a choice to recognize who God is. Oh, I wouldn't have time to explain this word, but it, it has the first symbol is the symbol of the outline of a tent from a top view. It speaks of our habitation. The next symbol is a circle with kind of an X in it. And that word has the understanding of surround and of, um, it, I'll just tell you what it is here, more or less. It has the understanding of containing and surrounding something. So we are giving our abode towards containing a containment, a clinging. Yes, that's why it defines it here as cling. And then the last one is the division of a tent wall, which speaks of constructiveness onto life. It speaks of division, separating good from bad, and so on. But I won't go into all of this meaning because it would take too long. I could really get into it and explain it more clearly, but that would take too long. I just want to go into some of the things that are in this chapter now briefly in closing. Um, and so... In these, as we continue to read these verses, King David says, Examine me, O Lord, and prove me, and try my reins and my heart. And the reason he says that is because he is so persuaded in who God is, and he's so trusting in who God is, that he doesn't mind God putting him through trials and testing and trying the motives of his heart or the reins of his heart. He actually asked God to do it. He trusts God so much. And then we understand why he can do this. It's because he sees that God, and it says it in verse 3, for thy loving kindness is before my eyes. You see, he sees that God is loving kindness. In fact, in another verse, he says, thy loving kindness is better than life. He sees that his relationship with God is better than life itself and anything in this world. Now, how is that so? Well, let me describe it this way. When you really appreciate the holiness of God, and it's easy to rebel against the integrity of God's love, when you see all the suffering that God allows in the world, which is due to the fact that people have rebelled against the integrity of, the love, of his love so that they are cut off from the presence of God. Remember, the second law of thermodynamics says anything left on its own goes in the direction of disorder. In other words, it has corruption and death in it. It can't go on forever. It's lost being able to abide in the ultimate source of life and of reality, which is God by choice, to rebel against the love of God. And so people get offended that God requires judgment and that he allows suffering and hell and death and all of these things because they lose sight of the fact that that is required for God to be ultimately good. They become caught up in their own understanding and ways. But King David recognized the loving kindness of God that was behind the holiness of God. 
And he says, for thy loving kindness is before mine eyes, and I have walked in thy truth or in thy reality or in the perception of the holiness of who you are or the integrity of your love that requires judgment. I have walked in what you require to be in conformity to your holiness. I've made choices that are according to my inner conscience with integrity and also according to what you've made clear from your word is on to the highest good and that also the inner conscience bears witness with. And that is the reason King David didn't have a problem with God allowing him to be tested and tried with trials to prove the motives of his heart to be pure before God because he was morally persuaded in who God is, in his loving kindness, and in his truth. His loving kindness is the mercy of God out of which we perceive the love of God. And that can only come out of first perceiving the holiness of God or the truth of God, which is the integrity of his law. I have not sat with vain persons, neither will I go with dissemblers. Those that are truly in conformity to the being of God's love hate that which is contrary to the being of God's love. So they hate people that are vain, that are given over to be manipulated by the temporal things of this world. They're manipulated by the bait of temporal things by powers of evil and darkness that control their lives in a direction that goes to destruction and hell. The word of God says in Jonah, they that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. He says here, I have hated the congregation of evildoers and will not sit with the wicked. King David didn't come in to such an innate intimate relationship of conformity to the being of God and of reciprocative fulfilling fellowship just overnight. He had a hunger for reality so that he spent time seeking God. And entered in to a life of prayer and fellowship with God that brought him into a greater and greater identity with what is ultimately real from those things that are empty and are not the source of reality. So he goes on here and he says, I will wash mine hands in innocency, so will I compass thine altar, O Lord. In other words, this word innocency has the understanding of just what the word means. I don't, I don't think I will go into the in-depth meaning of all these words. It would just take up too much time. But innocency, he can wash his hands in total innocency because he encompasses the altar of God. In other words, he recognizes the source of his cleanness is not in himself, but is in God's mercy, in the altar of God that speaks of God's atoning sacrifice and his power to forgive sin that he recognized. In other words, in God the Father that was only revealed in that time, there was the revelation of the Son because there was 
the revelation in King David of the integrity of his love and of that love in its transcendence of mercy to assure forgiveness and the implication of that being and the atoning power of God to forgive sins. And so, when there's been little mistakes he's made in the course of his life, he can wash his hands in innocency. And he says that I, I will publish with the voice of thanksgiving and tell of all thy wondrous works. He's filled with thankfulness because he knows that he's forgiven by God. That God is the source of his forgiveness. Because in God there is the power to forgive sins. Because he can become a perfect, atoning sacrifice. And there are many verses that King David gave forth by the Spirit of God that indicate that he knew this and that Christ, that God would reveal himself in the time and space realm and become a perfect atoning sacrifice. I don't have time to get into that, but we'd be preaching forever here. He goes on to say in verse 8, Lord, I have loved the habitation of thy house and the place where thine honor dwelleth. He loves to be where God's presence comes down, where God abides, which is the place where God's honor dwells. It is where people have utter reverence and humility and awe of who God is. That's where his honor dwells. There are many today that have lost the fear of God, that have lost the perception of who God is. If you really love someone, they're precious to you. You don't just treat them as someone that is common. They are so precious. When we really see who God is and his ultimate love, and goodness manifested in his required judgment of sin against all that is contrary to love, that is transcendent with the power to show such great mercy through perfect through his love to us to become a perfect atoning sacrifice. We will be an utter awe of who God is. And they recognize those two aspects of the being of God from the very time of Adam and Eve. and were born again of the Spirit, because in the Father they saw the Son. In fact, Christ said himself that whoever has been taught and learned of the Father comes to the Son. The Son was revealed before he came into the world to Abraham and others. He came in a theophany to Abraham and said, I am the Lord, and talked him in a physical body before he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah with the other two angels. The word Elohim means the Almighty's one. It is a plurality and yet a oneness. And I've described how there is only one God. Yes, in three personages, but those personages are one God in the governance of beyond time and space, in time and space, and filling all space. The ultimate aspects of all existence. And if God wasn't personage in those realms, he wouldn't be governing and wouldn't be God. Yes, 
in this passage, King David only wants to be where people have the real fear of God, where there's genuine perception of who God is that brings people to a place of great humility, which then in turn brings them to a place of great integrity and honesty before God, and in turn brings them to even greater humility before God. And out of that springs forth a genuine deep praise because out of that comes revelation. King David expressed it this way. He said, One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple all the days of my life. And I won't go on to read that verse. It is out of the holiness of God when we reciprocate the holiness of God, when we truly turn and receive his holiness and recognize his holiness, his required judgment of sin instead of rebelling against all the consequences because of his holiness. It's when we receive the holiness of God in recognition that it is what can only contain ultimate everlasting goodness or unlimited life and power without dissipation that is on to ultimate good. It is only in that that there is a genuine turning to God. A turning to God that causes us to enter into a state of wholeness. It is out of the holiness of God that we experience reality. And reality only satisfies. Reality is God indwelling us. And it is this reality that brings us into the inner core of our being to experience a total satisfaction and a total wholeness. Only ultimate reality can satisfy the very inner core of who we are. We were contained and created to contain God, for God created us for his pleasure. And out of holiness springs forth wholeness in us as we recognize the wholeness that springs out of the holiness of God. And out of wholeness springs forth beauty. And so King David said, one thing have I desired of the Lord. What is it? To behold the beauty of the Lord. Because to behold the beauty of the Lord is to behold what comes out of the wholeness of God, which comes out of the holiness of God. And what comes out of the holiness of God is the mercy of God that causes us to perceive the greatness of God's love. From which springs forth a reciprocation in our being where our soul opens up in a state of selfless trust to be reciprocative of the love of God in an intimate relationship that satisfies and allows the indwelling of God's spirit with our soul in that state of selfless trust that then grows as that seed that has been broken, that shell has been broken open and the life of God comes in, the sprout begins to grow and to unfold and undo and unweave over time and through trials and circumstances, the webs of deception so that this plant grows eventually to the point where the shuck falls off and there is the corn glowing in the sun and its ultimate purpose and destiny is entered into. And that's true individually and it is also true corporately that God is seeking a bride. 
He wants a bride, a corporate bride that is without spot or wrinkle. That is the ultimate purpose for which all things are created and exist. That is clearly mentioned in the book of Ephesians and other passages of Scripture. I do not have time here to continue to share the Word of God. I don't know how long I've been preaching. I forgot to put the timer on. God is calling his people to return to the fear of God. To make his house a house of prayer where we learn to worship him in spirit and truth by humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And that comes out of the fear of God by bending our soul and spirit and prostrate reverence before God, learning to be still and know that he is God. As it says in Ecclesiastes, it says when you come into the house of God, do not be so quick to speak anything before God, for it is more important to hear and to be still. To make sh- In other words, we're not to be filled with our own self-initiations of presumptive pride. We're to learn to perceive who God is and out of that allow humility and to be birthed so that the worship we have is pure and comes into a great liberty and love, a great expression of love. God is calling in this hour of the church and the body of Christ, especially in the prosperous world, to repent and turn their meetings into a house of prayer where they're more conscious of Christ walking in their midst than they are of the pastor or anyone else. Leadership needs to get on their knees and turn to God. Repent of not redeeming the time of being filled with idleness, spending time watching sports. The gods of amusements need to be repented of. All of these things. Sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was pride, idleness of bread. Pardon me, idleness and abundance of bread. We need to repent of being denominational. Christ told us to receive one another as he received us as sinners, and yet we receive some that believe the way we do and others that believe a bit different we don't receive fully. We need to repent of being denominational, of allowing our own judgments to stop us from having the humility to wash one another's feet with the word of God out of a pure heart of love without self-exalting motives. The leadership needs to repent of control. Not allowing the members of the congregation to share as the Spirit of God moves on them. I can't go into sharing much more than this or this message is going to be too long. May God bless all those that have heard this message and may you turn to the Lord with all your heart and ask Jesus Christ to totally be the treasure of your life, the very center and focus of your life by recognizing who God is to you personally. God bless you all.